Hey everyone, welcome back to Untucked. This is episode 21. Uh, we have our first guest this week, which we're super excited to share with you. But um, before we get into that, I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes, um, being that we've uh, been at this for 20 plus episodes, I wanted to just give our listeners a quick background on the three of us. Uh, Jeff, Mike, and myself, we are three members of a seven-person team at Financial Coach, a comprehensive retirement planning firm in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Financial Coach focuses on the unique needs of the modern pre-retiree and retiree. And we also have a separate offering for the 30 to 50-year-old. So again, financial planning focused with a, uh, a program that caters to the distinct needs of um, people starting businesses, raising families, um, dealing with college tuitions, um, and that is known as the New Wealth Project. So if you at any point um, want to learn more about us or our team or our firms, please feel free to visit either of our websites, um, www.financialcoachgroup.com or www.thenewwealthproject.com. I won't keep you from our episode this week any longer. Enjoy our interview with Rick Simpson, head swim and diving coach at Villanova University. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions or views of FC Advisory, the Financial Coach Group, or the New Wealth Project. Nothing discussed on this podcast should be interpreted as investment advice. Welcome to episode 21 of Untucked. This is Megan. This is Jeff. Mike. And we have a special guest with us today, uh, Rick Simpson is the head swimming and diving coach at Villanova University. Um, we'll get more into his bio a bit later, but uh, he's going to participate in the rundown. So welcome, Rick. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Did you guys know, I was floored by this, corn always has an even number of rows on each ear. Did you count that personally? No, it's just a fun fact. Corn always has an even number of rows, 8 to 20. Why are you floored by that? I would think that the rows of corn, the rows on an ear would Wait, be random. What's an ear of corn? It, like anybody, a, want, anybody want to help her out here? An ear is like what you eat, right? Yeah. Corn on the cob is an ear of is corn. Is an ear of corn. Yeah. Right. Like, don't they all come from the same corn seeds? When you say even number of rows, you mean it's either like six, eight, ten, or twelve, or yeah. No odd. Okay. I mean, that, those would all be even numbers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just just want to understand. <laughs> Don't you think there'd be one that might have thirteen rows or seven? I'm sure or? there is. There like, isn't. They're all even. Oh, you've checked every ear of corn in the history of ears. It's of a corn. it's a scientific. Well, I can't believe you guys debate me on every. It's a scientific fact. What's your source? The interwebs? Uh, this is foodreference.com. Actually, Al Morgani said it, and then I, I fact-checked it and couldn't, couldn't believe it. But 
Whatever. Well, I mean, that's a fun fact. I'll give you that. <laughs> I'm going to now count all the rows on every ear of corn I eat. And apparently, you know the, sh- the brown stringy stuff? Yeah. There's one strand for every kernel of corn. That's an even more fun. Uh, that's <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> I knew you were going to enjoy his fact, dude. <laughs> I, I mean, apparently that's true. I actually learned that when we were growing corn. No well, one, no one a, wants to contest that. Well, we have a corn expert in the room now, so I, mean, I got to go with Rick. Yeah, I mean, I think his fact is more fun, so yeah, we're going <laughs> to we'll go with him. But yours is easier to prove. Because I could see you actually every time you eat corn counting to make sure it's a yeah. good number. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Everyone knows that Jeff's a tweaker. I guess the question is are the rows horizontal or vertical? That, that I, I wasn't sure. I guess it's horizontal rows going top to bottom. Well, yeah. Like lengthwise. Lengthwise, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Philly sports. Sixers are back. I'm back. Meg's back on the train. <laughs> Everything I said last week, delete it from the record. I didn't watch. I had to check the score. And uh, all I know is they won. Yeah, they beat the Clips. I said to Jeff this morning, like, this is obviously why they're, like, the most frustrating team to watch because they play really, really well and beat really good teams and then lose to the Atlanta Hawks. But – Yesterday was like a very complete game from pretty much top to bottom. Um, Embiid looked like he was having fun. Like it was all good to me. They quasi booed him when they announced him, right? They were like a yeah. smattering of boos. Yeah. Apparently there were not as many as like the the previous two home games. Um, but the like opening possession or their second possession, he had like an offensive rebound, a putback, and and one and place went nuts. Place went nuts, and he had the biggest smile on his face. He did the like arms yeah, up, yeah. give it to me, guys. So he said afterwards um, something to the effect like, "If you can dish it out, you should be able to take it." I guess meaning if everyone's gonna boo him. He should be allowed to react the way he did on social media. Um, and, like, this is my city. I don't want to play anywhere else. Blah, 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 blah. You buy that? Or you think he's just, I mean, I think he's just a character just playing the game. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the social media antics were very intentional. Like, I think he's trying to, like, get a rise a little bit out of people. Um, I also think he felt like for the first time since he's been here that the fans had like given up on him and for good reason or not like i think he felt let down by the fan base that up until that point hadn't felt let down yeah god like how quick they were to just like trade him get rid of him dude first of all pump the brakes on how quick this fan base rode through the process it's been years they've been extremely patient and when you start playing like shit you get booed like cry me a freaking river i agree with you by the way i mean he's and i don't want to trade him he's dominant he played awesome last night the most frustrating thing is they're completely inconsistent but like feel let down all we've done is support the process yeah, 
I think that's my point. Like, all we've done as fans is support him, and he has, you know, uh, he doesn't have a great – he's not playing as well as he has in the – like he did last year. He's having a rough patch of games, and all of a sudden, like, all of the organization's fall, faults are on him. You know, like we're we're deflecting the fact that the front office put together a group of people that are probably not as compatible on the floor as they look on paper. And like it becomes Joe's fault. He's just became kind of like a scapegoat. And I think that's yeah. that's it. It's I mean, when they put up a performance like they did last night. It's super frustrating, like they should be doing that more consistently. And I, I said, I think I said to you yesterday, I mean, the t- they need a leader, man. They just need someone that's a veteran that can lead because it ain't Al, Al Horford. He's not the leader. No. And what's going to happen, I think, if they don't make it further in the playoffs this year, which I guess would be the Eastern Finals. Mm-hmm. No. They made, did they make it to the East last year? No. Um then they got to they got to get rid of Brown. As much as I'm not convinced he's the problem, they got to get rid of him and bring somebody with some fire in to coach to coach his team. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably where you start. Like I, I think I said to you yesterday, it's like to go from to not do anything and then to just get rid of a piece like Embiid or Simmons, which is what if you listen to like WIP, that's what everyone wants to do. Um, I think that just is a big jump. You'd have to do something with the the coaching staff first. Mm. Agreed. So, we'll see. I got nothing on <laughs> nothing on Sixers. You know, you guys know. I, I don't I don't watch NBA basketball unless it's uh deep into the playoffs and the Sixers are playing. Okay. Just curious if they'd have lost last night, would you be even more calling for the um, dismantling of the process. I think it depends on how they lose. Yeah. If they lose by zero effort and they're like moping around, my God, I want to throw my freaking TV out the window. I don't mind if you bust your ass and you lose. Allen Iverson did that a lot. And, and the city loves him for it. But when you're whiny and complaining, the city just doesn't have any patience for that. And yeah, they want you out. If that's, if that's going to be your MO, you're, you're gone. Yeah, I would agree. I think if Kawhi just and by the way, Kawhi was awesome. Do you um, see his dunk? Which one? Um, the one where they showed Dr. J right yes. after he dunked. Yes. Did you see he went baseline and shot over Embiid like just like he did last season when he ended the Sixers season? I didn't see that. And the shot like it went up, and I just like I almost had like PTSD. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. Um, yeah, if, I mean, the, the Clippers are a very good team and everything went right for the Sixers last night. So, um, if they play that way or at least play, come to play hard and the result isn't the same, I think I'm still way more optimistic. The fact that they got a win out of it is just kind of icing on the cake. Cause at this point we, they just needed something to go in the right direction and, a lot of things did. Yeah. Rick, you have a strong opinions on the Sixers? Villanova at the Pavilion tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All kidding aside, though, I mean, 
if you think about it, this whole thing this week was fueled by his reaction to the booze and telling the fan base to shut the bleep up. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're a, you, you all know this, if you're a, a sports star in Philadelphia, you have to be taught and you have to learn right away that the fans, they're going to give, give you their opinion, especially if it's a dissatisfaction. I always compare it to a, to a, a major sports star going into a fancy restaurant. If they're not happy with the chef's performance, they're going to want to talk to the chef. They're going to want to talk to the owner, and they're going to expect that their meal is going to be comped, and it probably will. Philadelphia fans, if they're not happy with the team's performance, the only outlet they have is to give you a boo. To me, I think the boo's overrated. I think they take it as like you've turned your back. No, they're just giving you their opinion for the night. We'll see you tomorrow, and tomorrow you'll probably get another standing ovation. And that's... I think there's a responsibility for the Philadelphia athlete to understand that. The Philadelphia fans are not going to come to the arena and just sip their beer and sit on their hands. And, you know, yeah, you guys are getting crushed by 30. Who cares? That's not Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. And if you can't handle that, go play in Cleveland. Minnesota, Cleveland, <laughs> somewhere where they just don't care. They don't care, right? That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, yeah. I can't argue it. No, and I don't know that I disagree. I just... I think we also, like, they're humans. Like, they're allowed to be themselves, right? Like, we can't expect a 25-year-old, right? He's a kid. Oh, this is, here we go. We can't, no. I, there is so much pressure and so much expectation on every single one of these players, from LeBron to Raul Neto. Like, everybody in this league, in any professional league, I would argue, lives a life that we cannot even begin to fathom. And if you do your job day in and day day out to the dissatisfaction of Joe Schmo, like, I, I don't know. I just feel like I abs- I'm a fan and I feel like you're allowed to be critical. You're allowed to boo, but he's allowed to like have 24 hours to react. And that's just my opinion. I disagree. I think, I think if you're a professional athlete, part of your training besides being able to hit a three-pointer or multiple three-pointers in front of 20,000, is to be able to play with blinders on in front of 20. Whether they're criticizing your mother, your sister, your girlfriend, your play, your lack of hustle, whatever it is, to me that's part of the training of being a professional athlete. You have to be able to stand at the free throw line while people behind the baskets are doing God knows what, and you don't see it and you don't hear it. And if that you can't do that, then you fall short of being a professional. That training just doesn't exist, though. Like, they're expected to learn it on their own. I mean, Embiid's from Cameroon. His first experience with any sort of American professional sports was four years ago. Like, his... At Kansas, which is... Like, right, but I mean... It could be a bloodbath. Yeah, but, the, but like, he just... He walked into it. There's no one telling him what to expect or giving... He's... He's trial by fire. He's learning it as he goes. And like he he will know in four years that he can't or two years that he can't react the way he did. But doesn't he like get to learn? I mean, he's learning on the biggest stage. I, I don't know. I just feel like maybe is, our is expectation. The social media outlet sort of the culprit, right? Is that where they're all kind of taken to 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 respond? Because before that, there really wouldn't be a platform to react unless you're getting interviewed after the game and most, you know, yeah. but once that's over, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of left to your own. I mean, he like shushed the crowd and vis- like he said, shut the fuck up. 
which was caught on camera. So this was okay. pre, like this was before he went to Instagram and and Twitter, I guess. So yes, the social media outlet certainly gives you like enhances it, but this was caught on camera, like during the game. I agree with Rick's take on that to some extent. Like part of your training to be a professional mm-hmm. is that. Like, when you get booed or they're giving you a hard time, you don't tell the fans, the people that are there supporting you, to shut the F up. Mm-hmm. Now, if someone's calling you the N-word and calling your mother the W-word, I mean, you're human. and What's the W-word? Yeah, a whore, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if I can say that or not. Uh, <laughs> I, she walked you right into that. That was awesome. <laughs> I expect that some people, as humans, will react poorly. Yeah. Because you can be trained for a lot, but you can't be trained for racial or just over-the-top criticism. But a boo because you're playing badly? Yeah, you should be trained for that. And the training you're talking about is just what? Like, you just get over it? Like, suck it up and, like, be okay with it? Is that what we're – is that the training? With a boo? Yeah. Yeah, suck it up. Be okay okay with it. But but again, getting back to his his background, I mean, I'm sure when he was at Kansas and I – I mean, we all know there are some places, some really nasty collegiate gyms to play in. I mean, there, you would know there better are some than most really, of really, really rough places where, you know, the, the student section is right up against the baseline. Yeah. You've got drunk frat kids yelling God knows what. Not not acceptable. Sure. Not appropriate. Not, certainly not encouraged. But it, it's there. I mean, you have a lot of 18 to 22-year-old kids who who learn real quick how to block it out. Again, the nonsense that goes on behind a basket when there's a kid on the free throw line. I mean, it's everything from people taking their top, females taking their tops off to, well, I mean, you name it, anything to try to get the guy to miss, and he doesn't miss. I mean, it's, I, again, I think at this stage of his career, you know, I mean, I, I've i seen Jeff sink, sink a bunch of three-pointers in his driveway. You take him and put him in front of 22,000 people, could he still sink it? Is But probably not. I mean, I'm just, no offense, but it's a whole different dynamic. I can't believe I made any in my driveway. Of, 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 of playing in front of a crowd like that. I mean, that's part of the deal. I yeah. Mean, you know, I don't know. It's like a golfer. I mean, imagine stand up on a tee box with 100,000 people lined up watching yeah. you hit the ball. Yeah. And, and I'm with you. I'm not – I guess it's just like the amount of people who have to do that, like the percentage of NBA, it's so small. Like, do you know what I mean? Like the – the concentration of people who are capable of doing it is minute. What do you mean? Like compared to the everyone in the oh, world, oh, like in yeah. the country, right? Like I we're think talking the majority about... of NBA players and pro athletes do have blinders on, and and it's why they're there and yeah, play absolutely. really well. And, and so it's it's when these things happen, they get highlighted so much, right? So of the however many games he's played thus far in his career, he has a bad reaction in one and we're still talking about it i guess (laughs) is my point (laughs) fly guys playing great but last night was a brutal loss to an important game where they just played poorly they went down three nothing jeff did you watch it i tuned in when it i tuned in in the second period yeah, so I saw them come back and make it three two. Battle back. The Islanders are a real nemesis of, of a team for them because they got a, they're the team they need to catch. They're kind of they would have been really important to win that game in regulation, or even just get a point. They tie it late, and then they come out for the last shift and they get scored on game yeah. over. And it was a horrible, brutal shift. It's a demoralizing loss. You got to wonder 
how important this game might end up being for them. Um, they got they they came out they came out awful, but they fixed it, and then they ended awful and they lose. So we'll see. They got a tough stretch in the next few days of important games again against playoff caliber teams. So. Um, this week's kind of a brutal week for them, right? Yeah, it's tough, but it's it's the seat make or break for the season. Um, the season is on the line this week. Pretty much. Really? Yeah, they shit the bed and they and they win one and lose three. They're they're too far back. This the East is so competitive, and there are so many teams. The Flyers have like the eighth or ninth best record in the whole NHL. Wow. And, and where do they sit in the East? Sixteen teams make the playoffs. In, yeah. in the entire league, and in the East, they're like eighth. Right. Oh shit! I mean, there's maybe one team in the West that's like better than them. So um, there's some just really strong teams in the East that wow. are continuing to win. So the pressure's on. I mean, they're playing well. Last night was a tough one, though. The young guys have stepped up, huge, huh? Yeah, great, real good, real good. Um, why was Elliot between the pipes? Because Hart played last night or the night before. Oh, it was a back to back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. Why does we he suck it up see. and play two games in a row? <laughs> <laughs> the too too hard to stand in between the, the, the poles that long? Yeah, that's what they do. They just stand <laughs> up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's enough on that. <clears throat> Anything else? Spring training. Oh, yeah. Pitchers and catchers. Yesterday they reported. I'll be down there in two weeks. Are you guys going to a game? Yep. Cool. Yep. Have it's you a, been to games? I've never been to Clearwater. They're fun. Yeah, yeah so I'm looking the forward to Phillies it. The Phillies are fun. They don't charge you any less for the uh, Grapefruit League tickets than they do regular season tickets. Really? Yeah. They're like 40 bucks a pop. Yeah, I was really surprised. I took I took my daughter to uh, uh, the the Braves site where they when they played the Phillies at that, that ESPN Disney complex. Oh, okay. I figured, you know, spring spring training, it's going to be, you know, what, 10 bucks? No. It's like... Yeah. In, including the concessions. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a regular day at the ballpark. Yeah. In terms of how it hits your wallet. <laughs> and are they pretty sold out usually? Like, are they... Uh, they must be. Otherwise, they couldn't charge that, right? I don't know. I, guess. I mean, it's a yeah. smaller... It's like a yeah, it's way not, smaller... Um, I don't like. I feel like there was a lot of standing room, but maybe I'm just not remembering. Correctly. <laughs> yeah. Depends on how many beers you were in there. Mike. Okay. Oh, and you don't even see like the starters, do you? It depends know. on the day. I mean, it yeah, depends. You're right. I mean, they rotate them in. Sometimes they do split squad stuff. You see a lot of names you never heard of. I mean, it won't matter to my kids. I mean, if I guess all they care about is Bryce. So if we can see Bryce Harper, we'll be happy. All right. All right. Fair enough. Cool. Coach's Corner. So the first article we'll talk about is called Why Investors Should Pay for Advice. It was written by Bryce Sanders, um, and we found it on iris.com, I-R-I-S, I'm not sure. Um, Bryce runs through 12 reasons he believes it makes sense to pay for financial advice. Um, We can maybe just pick a couple. We want to talk about guys. Sure. Anyone have anyone that any of them that they feel strongly about? Five, seven, and ten specifically for me are the okay. ones I felt so strongly about. So five is do you want to take responsibility? Yeah, I it said um, people want someone to blame for misfortune. Right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of a lot of people 
don't want the, the, the fault of the bad decision to be on them. They want to point the finger at somebody else. And I think I find it a lot with, with our business specifically. I think a big, a big reason why some people hire us is because of that. They want to be able to say, I wasn't the one responsible for that decision. You, Megan, as my advisor were, so you're at fault. But I also kind of took that differently as well because there's a lot of circumstances where we're giving someone advice and we say, look, you should, um, Rick, you need to save for your kid's college. So you can either pay the school directly. You can do a 529 plan. You can do option C, D, or E. And we explain, we see as our role is to explain pros and cons of all those decisions to help you make it. But then a lot of our clients will say, look, I hear all that. Just tell me what I should do. Like I hear that so often. Like, that's great. I really appreciate you educating me and telling me all the pros and cons, but I don't want, like, that's why I pay you. You tell me what decision I should make. Now that was kind of the biggest one for me was number five. Yeah. For me, there's a, I think there's a group of people out there that are on paper capable of doing it themselves for the most part, but they still shouldn't. And I think the analogy that, that resonates with me is that saying where, you know, the, the, the lawyer that has him or herself for a client has, or that the lawyer that, that represents him or herself has a fool for a client. Right. And I think it's, it's relevant because the point is you're perfectly capable of representing yourself. You know the law, you know what to do, you know how the process works, but you're too close to it. Like you need somebody mm -hmm. between you and the process who's, who's more objective, who's removed from your personal situation and with investing, it's your money, right? Right. And having that that buffer, that filter, that other set of eyes that are objective and maybe, not maybe, but definitely bring value to somebody who's in that situation, I think is the, the thing that, and it wasn't listed on here, but when I read the article, that was, that was what I thought of. Um, the other thing about the article I'll just say is, it was generic advice that they're talking about, why you should pay for generic advice. The point that wasn't made on here is why investors should pay for um, the right kinds of advice. It's not necessarily like, hey, stock pickers or hire right. somebody to, you know, tell you when to get in and out. That's that's not the right kind of advice. But um, maybe that's a tangent. <laughs> mm -hmm. I resonated the with number eight. Do you see the big picture? I just think people get so kind of to your point, Mike. People are so easily. Um, like get trapped in the the very minute details of things and lose perspective, especially when we think about the long term. I know we don't like saying that, but perspective that we try to keep with the decision making that we um, we help our clients work through. So having somebody to remind you like what we're doing this for, not just for the next year or two years, but for the next five, ten, and fifteen, I think is. Um, like really invaluable. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, what, yeah. Were, what was your take on the article? Well, going back to your point, I, I'm not sure if, at least for myself, as like from the customer's perspective, I'm not sure how much of it is looking for somebody to blame because there's, you know, some things in life. I don't want to have to blame anybody. I don't want to blame. I don't want to be in a position to blame my doctor because right. the whole thing went to crap. <laughs> But, you know, again, using the doctor as an example, you know, I don't want to be in a position where my doctor saying, what do you think? You know, here are your options. Should you do 75 milligrams, 50? What do you like? No, I, you're the expert. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to sleep better knowing that my doctor said we're taking 75 milligrams and we're doing it twice a day. That's where we're going. And I, I think I'm sort of the same way with, with the financial planning aspect of things. I feel a little bit more comfortable letting the experts do what the experts do. I'm not an expert in that field, so if you want my opinion, um, it's going to be very un, uneducated. And is that what we want? I don't know. But right. it, as far as looking for a blame, I don't I certainly hope I never want to be in a position looking for blame. That's never the goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one was seven, which was you, you, you can get enough information or can you get enough information to make a good decision? Um, and he quoted like, we're, we are drowning in information while starving for wisdom, which I thought, I mean, that resonated with me. There's just so much information out there. And a lot of the free information has biases. So how can the average Joe or Shmo, as you call them, Meg, uh, discern what's the right information and what's the wrong information? That's part of our role is to help people kind of see through all the bullshit and really know what they should be focusing on. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think it's a huge part of our role, which is sifting through the 99 plus percent of stuff that's spewed out there every day that is complete noise and irrelevant and that's I think for someone who's not in our position that can be very hard to understand what's important and what's not when you're reading a headline or hearing something from a friend or whatever the case may be um, a lot of the job is to is to like be the filter yeah and that kind of ties into nine and ten around are you trained and how much experience do you have because from our perspective that comes from being in this every day sure. and, and working with with clients or with investors on on such a regular basis that it becomes our expertise just because of experience whereas someone who's in and out of it and doing their day job and then listening to fox or cnbc in their downtime it's just it can't be sound good advice or recommendations you're not giving advice it's not you're not you're not getting experience you're just talking about it yeah um the last line said the bottom line is investing is more complicated than it looks i mean i read that and i was like man he's right i mean he listed these 12 things it really is more complicated and we just don't do investing i mean we're doing financial planning which makes the big the picture even bigger yeah um and i'm sure it's the same in in your business i mean as a coach the experience how long have you been coaching 25 years. I mean, that experience has to relate to your abilities, right? Versus a, a kid who just comes into into swimming and is going to start coaching and guiding kids. I would imagine maybe the technique doesn't change of or much as far as how you're instructing kids to swim, but maybe the more, more of the experience helps you with managing those kids and dealing with them. Yeah, and I, th- I think we all share, whether it's your industry, um, athletics, college athletics, high school athletics, and, and even my wife's industry. My wife's a, a dietitian. And I think the one thing we all share is this idea that there's a lot of information out on the street that people feel they can self-educate themselves. There's At every level of sports, there's parents who can go on YouTube and find a better way to coach their kids' defense in lacrosse. This is what he or she should be doing. My wife's industry, you know, you don't have to go far at all to find anything from completely off the reservation, crazy nutritional advice that could actually kill you 
to stuff that's somewhat sound. And, and then, of course, I think your industry, you know, exactly the same. There's a lot of people that, you know, they, they, they watched Wall Street, you know, back in the 80s. And that looks kind of cool. And I can go on all these websites and sign up for all these newsletters. And I know what I'm doing. And uh, it's pretty risky, I think, in a lot of different ways. It's, it's interesting because the outcome often is what you would expect. Yeah. They fall short. They, they fall yeah. short of their goals in whatever athletics, finance, whatever it may be. Yeah. How much is that of that is driven by ego, though? And like an unwillingness to say what you just said. Like, I, I'm willing to pay for a recommendation. Or I'm willing to seek out the advice from a professional. How much of that is from people who just think so highly of themselves that they're able to figure it out on their own? I think it's either ego or stupidity. Okay. You're either dumb <laughs> and you don't realize what you don't know and you think that you can do it, or you're just an ego man. Or cheapness. Or cheapness, yeah. yeah. A lot, yeah. lot of people just don't want to pony up the there's fees that. to pay for an expert. And, yeah. there's, and there's also this, the group that are super control freaks who could not hand over the keys under any circumstances. And you know, they're, they're a whole group that yeah. is not a candidate for any of this. So we're just identifying all the people we don't want to work with. <laughs> yeah, right? so I guess there's more to it. <laughs> uh, interesting take, Rick. Our next article... Um, is about college sports and mental health. So this was written by Clark Leonard from the University in Northern Georgia. Didn't even know it existed. Um, mental health was on the forefront of a recent NCAA convention where a panel entitled Mental Wellness, Building Trust Between Coaches and Student Athletes discussed best practices for monitoring mental health of college athletes as well as allocating resources to improving it. Uh, University of North Georgia's head men's soccer coach, Patrice Barris, was quoted saying, if we're going to demand the physicality of the sports we coach, we also need to respect and coach the mental side. Um, so this is obviously, Rick, we put this in here because this is what you do and deal with every day, but we're all also like sports fans involved with your guys' kids. I was a college athlete, so we just thought it was kind of a a good subject to, to tackle. Um, do you have any thoughts on it generally yeah a couple of things well first off the the article is is more than spot on i mean it, it's actually a a bigger talking point um than even the article than even to. the article says i mean i don't think we have many meetings at all on campus that don't at some point touch on um the mental health issue and, and as it relates to to college athletes i think the second point there it's not limited to college athletes this is a trend on all college campuses if you talk to anybody that's affiliated with a, a college or university's um, counseling center, they will tell you that the numbers, especially if they've been in the industry for a long time, have just skyrocketed. And there's a, a bunch of theories as to why. Um, as far as the the athletic component, I do think that um, you know you're adding just you're taking a national problem that particular college age demographic and then you're throwing even more fuel into the fire when it comes to athletics because of you know pressures to win pressures to live up to a scholarship pressures to live up to parental expectation and then of course there's there's metrics involved i mean there's some you know hey i'm my stats are a little bit low i'm my shooting percentage is lower than last year i'm failing or uh you know, my batting average is lower than it was in high school. I'm failing. So there's all these metrics that they can compare themselves to. And these are just theories. I 
I'm going to say I am not qualified to come right. up with any of this. this. You know, but this is just some of the theories, and then of course the social media component, which we already sure. talked about, the professional level. Um, that is a reason that has been given by a lot of professionals that the social media component beginning in, in the early high school years all the way through has really um, fueled a lot of this. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but that's sure. one of the theories out there. I mean, I think it's an absolute no-brainer that, especially with college athletes, they should be trained not like individually like, hey, what are your... What are you dealing with right now? Let's talk it out. Like they don't all need individual talk therapy, but the ability to understand, hey, you're going to tend to feel this way in certain circumstances and this is how you deal with it. Or these are some coping mechanisms when you start to feel stressed or anxious or have anxiety. Like that is that should absolutely be be taught. It should be taught to the athletes, it should be taught to everyone. And the fact that it's 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 becoming on the forefront is is awesome because I think like you just pointed out, Rick, these kids have they're, they're under way more pressure than we were, I feel like. And with social media and all the different stresses that they're exposed to. And people accept that mental health as, as something now. Whereas before in my generation, my parents' generation, it was you were looked at as a wimp for needing to talk to somebody. And it's, it's, it's proven now how important the mental health of your body is to the physical health of your body. Yeah, I mean... I. Certainly, it's way better, but I think there's so much more to go. Yeah. Rick, to your point, nationally and in sports or no sports, I mean, it's just a uh, the the work that needs to be done and the attention needs to be paid across the board is just there's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, undoubtedly, all you have to do is look at the the results and the and the and the instances of things that are happening. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, as far as the article, there's no, there's no disagreement on right, on right. The point for sure. But uh, it's a, it's a serious issue. That's all you got, Meg. You got nothing else. I don't know what I'm gonna say that hasn't been said. Uh, I I think that, at least in my experience as a college athlete, the what I found to be most helpful was having people, teammates who were older. And this was mostly like freshman year, having teammates who were older who were able to say like, this sucks, like what you're feeling is normal. And explaining that, you know, going to class, going to practice, studying for exams, like all of those demands of you, the way you feel is how I felt. Like that meant more to me than than anything else. And that wasn't purposeful by my college. That was not intentional by the the girl who said it to me. That just was a nice person who was like, recognized that I was struggling and was just like, you'll get through it. So for me, it was just continuing to try to cultivate that with anybody younger who came into the program. And then the recognition that like, it can't be on the athletes to help the other athletes. Right. Like it has to be bigger than that. Um, and so reading something like this, hearing that, you know, at, at Nova, whether it's athletic related or not, this subject and topic is on um, the docket all the time, I think is, I mean, that's how it's going to get fixed. I agree with you, Mike. There's a lot of work to do, but at least it seems like we're trending <clears throat> in the right direction generally. Yeah, I think we also have a lot of work to do with the much, much earlier age 
Um, and this is where I'm going to kind of sound like the, the crotchety old man of, you know, back in our day. Bring it on. Um, <laughs> I, I look at my daughter. So my, my daughters do gymnastics. And we go to a gymnastics meet. And every single, I'm going to be that old guy that doesn't like everybody getting a trophy, but everybody, every girl walks out of that gymnastics meet with a bunch of medals wrapped around her neck and trophies and stuffed animals and you name it. And everybody's a winner. And that, that's great. And it's it certainly you know takes a big stress off of the parent's shoulder because they don't have to do the role of consoling. But I think consoling a young kid who had some disappointment is important. Yes, it stinks as a parent. It does. I mean, you don't want to see your seven-year-old daughter upset because she's walking out without any medals and somebody else did. But guess what? It's going to happen at some point. And how prepared will the son or the daughter be when they get to the certain age, when they start to realize, yes, not everybody wins every game. It's just the way it is. Um, how, do you, how do you prepare yourself for that? Or how does somebody prepare you for that? Um, you know, we have we, a we, uh, phrase, and you may have heard it, snowplow parenting. It's become a hot topic of college. Snowplow parenting is basically parents trying to keep a very clear path with no obstructions whatsoever, making it just a smooth ride. Well, that's great, but at some point, you're going to get that rejection letter from the law school you want, or you're not going to get the job you want, or something's going to go wrong in your life. Have you been prepared to handle it? The, kid, of, the kid's doomed for failure. They're doomed, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. and it's unintended consequences. Nobody's doing this, you know, right. for the wrong result. It's just that lack of recognition that that likely is going to be the result when you plow away every every obstacle it's, um, i think great. for a, sorry a long time too like sports were sports were the reason that kids learned to deal with failures right it because you didn't win every game you weren't the best player on every team um and then the idea that for participating you're you know given a medal or a trophy it, it takes away from that early experience of being able to say like I'm not going to walk into every room and be the best at everything. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's okay. That's, yeah. That's the key learning point there. So now that we've heard from Rick for the last 40 minutes, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, as we mentioned before, Rick is the head swimming and diving coach at Villanova. This season, you're 20th at Nova. That's correct. Um, as head coach, the women's team is competing for their seventh straight Big East title, which correct. is pretty dope. Uh, last season, Rick and his coaching staff were named Big East Women's Swimming Coaching Staff of the Year. Rick is a friend of Jeff's, a friend of the pod, and agreed to be our first guest. So thank you for joining us again today. Um, let's maybe start at the beginning. How did you get into swimming, diving? Did you participate in the sports yourself? I was. I was a swimmer growing up all, uh, all through my childhood. Um, swam at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. And... Uh, like so many coaches in, in a lot of different sports, you kind of fall into the industry. There's surprising how few people go through their college career with the, the goal of being a coach um, of any sport. Oftentimes they roll into a, a graduate assistant position. In my particular case, my degree was in, in uh, uh, land use planning and I, I did a, a co-op with an architectural firm in, in Philly, and I wanted to be a planner. I wanted to work for an architect or a real estate developer, and as luck would have it, when I graduated in the early 90s, uh, real estate recession, um, 
I was offered a, a job to stay on as in coach. I figured I would tread a little water for a while until the market picked up and the rest is history. Never got out no of No pun intended. <laughs> yep, exactly. So you stayed on at Rutgers? I did. Okay. I did. I got my first uh, coaching job as an assistant coach right out of college. Okay. And so Rutgers to Nova or was there anything in between? Uh, I had a few jumps along the way. Went okay. uh, from Rutgers to West Point. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, so that was a fantastic experience. Um, actually came back to Rutgers and then uh, was at Seton Hall. I was the head coach there for a few years. And then from Seton Hall back to the Philadelphia area, which is where I'm from. And it was great getting out of that New York Giants territory. I'd had, <laughs> had to get out of there. Get back to Philly sports area. 20 years ago, did you anticipate still doing this, still being at Nova or still being a coach, I should say? Yes, at that particular part of my career, I it was a it was a career at that point, okay. and um, I was settled in. And, um, so I, I have a question: um, since you swam, and then comparing that to today, do, I'm just curious: is there more specialization than there was? Like when you were swimming, did you do like everything? And now you have somebody who just comes up and and is like a just focuses on one style. Is that is that how it goes, or is that my well, yes and no. Um, there is there is certainly more specialization than there was back when I swam, but there's still a ton of value to the to the versatile athlete. Um, I think you know Michael Phelps is probably your your most your highest profile example of that. A guy who was a 400 IMer, which is not considered a sprint event, but also was on the four by 100 world record breaking gold medal uh, team multiple times, uh, which is a sprint event. So he was a considered a, a pretty versatile athlete. He could do everything in between as well. He just, the public didn't realize that, of how good he was at everything. Um, so that's really uh, the type of athlete that's still very marketable, but I think you are seeing some, some sp- it's a really kind of a big argument in the sport now at the younger level, age group level. You, right. know, you hear like, hey, my kid's 11, he's a sprinter. Like, no, no, your, your kid's a swimmer, not a yeah. sprinter. Like, right. don't, don't do that, uh, you know. So what role does that type of thing play into the recruiting process? We were talking about like the difference between maybe recruiting a swimmer versus maybe a, a team sport player where the eye test, you know, when you're watching a basketball player, you're seeing them on, you know, both sides of the floor, the way they get, they manage with their team, that type of thing. Whereas swimmers, you know, you could look at times and just see how they finish in every race. So does the versatility and that you just you just described it as a versatile swimmer, is that part of the eye test or is that something you can quantify? It's definitely something we can quantify through, as, as you said, you know, we're, we're very, very uh, fortunate that um, our sport is very objective. Times are times. Um, and my colleagues at Villanova have to spend an awful lot of time on the road evaluating talent because, you know, again, somebody's shooting percentage might not mean a whole lot depending on who he or she is playing against where sure. somebody calls me up and says, Hey, I know this kid. He's, he's great sprinter. What's his time? Well, no, he's not that great of a sprinter. No, he really is. No, no, he's not. <laughs> um, so we're, we're really fortunate in that area. But, um, you know, again, I think our rule of thumb is versatility is, is the ideal because there's just so many moving parts. If you're going to be specialized in our sport, you, you better be really darn good. If you're going to be a what we call a three hit wonder, somebody just swims three events, you better be really, really good at those events um, versus somebody who who can do five, six, seven different events. Be sort of a watered down Michael Phelps type. 
how much of your recruiting process um, do you focus on the athlete, their personality, their family? I mean, do you get into that stuff? Absolutely. Now and now more than ever. Um, you know, it's interesting when we do go on the road to to evaluate talent. People, I think, are surprised what we're evaluating. We go to a meet, and, you, and again, you're walking into the door of this venue, knowing already what the the, the capability and what the level of the athlete is. What we're looking at. Um, after a race, how coachable is the athlete? How does the athlete interact with the coach? And now more than ever, and I'm, I'm really throwing out a secret here, we're watching the, the parental dynamic. I mean, how many coaches will say, I've sat in the stands and three rows over is Jeff Mastronardo's parents and they are great, done, we're out, we're not recruiting this because we're not taking that on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. no different than, so I coach at the you know teenage uh, level same thing when we pick our teams we're picking parents too like it's not it's no secret and you know it's well known once you do it for a few years who's who and, and what the dynamics are it's, it's funny to hear you're you're in the same boat i mean our, our athletic director uses the phrase all the time remember you are recruiting the families also because they are now part of the package and unfortunately uh i think our our, our parents villanova and our swimming program do a very, very good job of this, but there are a lot of programs that don't where you think, you know, orientation weekend, the parents drop the, the student off and they wave goodbye and they leave. Now, they, are, they will be involved at a lot of different levels um, and not always welcome to be involved, but they will anyway. Um, again, we're very fortunate that we're sort of have been dodging that bullet. But, yeah, the, the idea of you're recruiting the families as well. Have you ever recruited someone and the idea was we think we can change the family? Like we really like the swimmer. Their parents are a little batshit crazy. We need to bring them into orientation and let them know what the deal is going to be. Well, in my younger days, I arrogantly took that approach a lot. <laughs> I, I did in a yeah. lot of different ways. Whether it was an athlete who I thought character-wise wasn't what we were looking for but athletically was, and that's fine because I'll just – I'll beat him into being the kid that I want. And that was a, a, an arrogant mistake on my part. Um, with the parents, you know, again, a lot of parents, you know, uh, to, to your point, some of them do walk in and they're just not educated. They, they think that that's appropriate and all they need is somebody to tell them it's not and they're, they right. back off. Right. And then there's others and you kind of know these people aren't going anywhere. This, this is a person of means who's used to getting whatever he or she wants. Right. And whether it's at the country club, whether it's the high school, the club level, when they get here, they're expecting the same. And we're just, we're not managing that. We're, we're moving on. There's, there's enough, no pun intended, but there's enough fish in the sea. <laughs> Would you attribute your success to a lot of that process without tooting your own horn too much? Like, no, I'm a great coach. And that's why we're. I, you know, I don't know. This is going to sound sort of like a, a recruiting cliche, but I, I would hope that that process is creating success for the individual as a whole. In other words, we're graduating complete student athletes who are who are good people as a result of that. Is that does that attribute to the success in the water? I don't know. Okay, I don't know. Fair enough. Uh, is there a difference because you're the men's and women's coach? Yes. Is there a difference in the way that you approach recruiting for your female athletes versus your male athletes? Well, Villanova, we have to because okay. Villanova. It's interesting. We have a very unique dynamic. Um, I don't know if there's any other program in the country where. We have one coaching staff, coaches men and women. Um, our women are, are funded, so we have scholarships. Our men are not funded at all. Oh, okay. Um, very successful program, but they're all 
they're all pulling their own weight. They're paying they're, the play. No scholarships. So yes, I mean we're wow. Okay, we're really trying think. to sell a university. We're trying to sell a family on spending up to seventy-seven thousand dollars a year for their son to come and, and compete at Villanova and, and get a great education. We're on the women's uh, side of things. You know, they're we are we're selling the same, but we're also dealing and navigating the whole scholarship piece and. The university is so-and-so is offering this, and this particular university is offering that. You know, what's Villanova offering? So there's you know, we really do kind of go off in two different directions at a certain point in the process. So I'm curious about the swimming versus diving dynamic. Like, to me, it seems like two very different disciplines, techniques, all that sort of stuff, and you coach both. Did you dive as well? I didn't. I think the easiest uh, analogy is track and field. Okay. You know, you have your your distance runners, your sprinters, your hurdlers, and then you have some guy throwing a, you know, a giant, I don't know how, how much is a shot put, I don't know. But, you know, I mean, there's there's no correlation whatsoever. You, how do you put those two together? You've got this, you know, gazelle who's just running faster than anybody, and then you got this other guy who looks like an offensive lineman who's just throwing this weight, you know, further than any of us could and, but they're the same thing. They're track and field. Swimming and diving is the same thing. I mean, it's uh, you've got an objective sport, and you know the clock makes all the decision, and then you you pepper in a couple of events where it's it's judged and a lot of subjectivity, and that's that's a uh, an argument in the collegiate swimming and diving world that is is endless as to whether or not they should be separated. Who are some of the more notable swimmers you've ever coached? Anyone we'd know, Olympians? Probably not. I mean, I've I've been really fortunate to um, be around some great athletes, and I use that phrase "be around them" because I think that's the most accurate. I, I've you know, in my early part of my career, I, I worked for a, a local club. And we had four uh, men that made the United States Olympic team in '92. I say be around because I didn't develop them, right? But I was on the staff and got to be part of the process for for a while and really gain a whole lot of experience. Um, First year of Villanova, we did have a, a local athlete, um, Maddie Crippen, who's from Conshohocken, local, and who is um, NCAA champion, made the U.S. Olympic team again. Um, you know, I, I use the phrase be around because I had the honor and the pleasure of, of getting to coach her at Villanova. But, um, you know, she was very, very, very good at the national and international level before she even walked through the Villanova's doors. So, um I don't take an ounce of credit. It's the opposite. I thank I thank her for the privilege of, of being able to work with her and an athlete at that level. Um, we've had a number of international athletes come through our program, which have been really exciting because they've gone on to compete at the international level, and we've we've been able to be a part of that, which is a, a great experience uh, in a lot of different ways. What's the youngest age you, you're starting to hear about? You know, superstar potential you know, future swimmers. Are you, are you hearing about like nine year olds and 10 year olds? If it's coming from the parents? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, uh, but I actually just saw a piece yesterday. There was a big announcement that the, uh, the, the youngest Olympic trial qualifier just qualified this weekend. She was 13. So there was a, there was a young, a young girl that just this past weekend hit, hit the time standards for the U S Olympic trials, 13. She's now, at this particular stage, the youngest on the list. Holy shit! Wow. Yeah. So, what were you doing at thirteen, Meg? Not. I think I was playing with Legos. Olympic trial <laughs> swimming time. That is for damn sure. So you have this dynamic of all the men, all the women. I mean, 
any any like what's the any crazy stories that have happened with you having to try to like discipline and and keep everybody in line? Actually, no. Believe it or not, knock on wood, um, they manage it very well. Um, you know, there there's always a team dating issue that. Um, you know, they, they know my opinion on that. I mean, they, if they're going to go to that route, they, they, it's like dating in the workplace. You better be able to manage it because we don't want to manage your relationships for you. Um, and, and understand that it's uh, when you walk through the door, it's still is your training center, basically. That's yeah. the phrase we use. This isn't your social club. This is your training center. you got to stay focused on what you're doing. And uh, um, there's been some, some great stories that have come out of it. People you even know, husband and wife team. You yeah. Know, yeah, I mean, I would assume that, I mean, all college college kids party, but when you're when you're a college athlete, like, and especially swimming, like your your training schedule is so intense. I'm assuming that they don't have time to do that kind of stuff. Want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, they're, they're they're college kids. But how do you? They, how do you go they'll out find and, a they'll find a way. But how um, do you do that and then show up for a five a.m. They're Practice. 20. Yeah. You're right, invincible yeah. when you're 20. They don't have to go to bed at 8.30 like you, <laughs> They don't get hungover. <laughs> no, I, I not, again, knock on wood, I think, you know, I think there's, you know, we call it the three S's. There's swimming, there's school, and there's social. And you've got to know when, especially particular times of the year, what order that should come and how you manage that. But, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not naive. You know, I, I swam in college. I, li- I was on a college campus, been in the business a long time. There's going to be times of the year where, you don't have anything going on on Sunday. So what are you doing Saturday night? Uh, who knows? You know, maybe you're at a party. Maybe you're down in Old City. Maybe you jumped on a train and went up to Manhattan. And, you know, you stayed out till 5 in the morning. I mean, you, who knows? But, I mean. Sounds like all personal experiences. <laughs> <laughs> Last weekend. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you for that, man. It was good, yeah, good information. Yeah, that's great. Top five this week. Clint Eastwood Projects. I mean, I'll go. This wasn't very difficult for me at all. Um, it was harder for me than I expected. So I haven't agreed. seen a lot of his old I, shit. Like, I went through his IMDb and I was like, 1966? Are you kidding me? I like how they were able to separate. Yeah. Like, directing, producing, acting, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to put them in order, but Grant Torino had to make my top five. It's so good. It's so good. Unforgiven. It's another one I can't turn off if it's on TV and I come across it. Um, one that I don't think a lot of people saw is Absolute Power. Anybody see Absolute Power? It was it was awesome. So. It's an absolute must watch if you're if you're an Eastwood fan. Um, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. If we're gonna go Western, and then Mystic River was freaking awesome. Yeah, I gotta say I did, have not seen like you, Meg. I thought I would have seen a lot yeah. of them and even more recently and I, I just haven't yeah so um I'll, I'll do mine same thing no order um I got sudden impact on mine really because I probably watched that movie 50 times which yeah. one was sudden impact sudden impact was a dirt in the dirty it's in a- <laughs> are we sure we know what movie we're talking easy about now. Sure. easy I mean I I don't know it's a night early 80s probably okay. and I I mean I watched it over and over when I was a kid, it was just awesome um, I got another one on here in the line of fire. Yeah, that was which great. I really liked. I mean, Malkovich, I think, was in that. Yeah, and he was awesome. I, it was just, it was just good. Um, I've got Gran Torino because mm-hmm. that was just a great, a uh, great movie. And then fourth one I have is 
<laughs> this is kind of fine one. Every which way but loose. Never saw it. No. Wow. No. Nope. That's Most going back. The greatest character name ever, Philo Beto. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was his character's name. It was just a dumb movie, but just funny. He had an orangutan as like his sidekick. I mean, come on. How, oh yeah, I do remember that. And then my top, maybe my top one is just because it it's it's great. Escape from uh, Alcatraz. Never saw. I don't think I saw it. Mm-mm. I think I. No. He was Frank. Uh, oh, wait. The, the, it's based on a true story. I forget. No. I, I The only Alcatraz one I'm thinking of is, isn't Sean Connery in an Alcatraz one? one? The it's Rock. The Rock. Oh. Welcome to The Rock. <laughs> All right. Um, my dad's going to hate me if he ever hears these. Um, true Crime. He plays like the... He's like a reporter who tries to prove that this guy on death row is actually innocent. Sounds horrible. I mean, it was it was pretty good. Uh, American Sniper. He was the director of that, yeah. which I really liked. I had Gran Torino. I put this one Trouble with the Curve, only because Justin Timberlake's in it. So obviously that gets a <laughs> nod from me. And then I think his best project is his son, who is super hot. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> God, yeah. I mean, he it counts. He is a product of Clint Eastwood. Google him, guys. <laughs> What do you got? Rick. So I try to break mine down into different categories. Again, no uh, no priority or, uh, or order here. So the first category was just straight up actor. I went with the whole Dirty Harry series. Just, okay. Uh, uh, the second one was where he was uh, the director, only not the producer. I went with The Rookie, which I, again, is going back a number the of rookie. years. The Rookie. Uh, Charlie Sheen was in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just remember the one phrase. I love it. You know, he said something about, you know, he called something cockamamie and he looks at him and he says, cockamamie. Now there's a good phrase you young guys don't use anymore. You should throw it around every so once in a while just to kind of keep it out there. <laughs> um, the next uh, was where he was producer and director and also in it, which was again, Gran Torino. Um, okay. The whole project I thought was fantastic. The next one was just sort of, um, you know, sort of light and entertaining, which was Space Cowboys. I thought it was mm-hmm. entertaining, somewhat humorous, but also interesting. A lot of kind of a NASA component. Really? I mean, I thought that was going, I was going to make a joke like, hey, Space Cowboys didn't make anybody's list. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually, we're agreeing that should be on a list. I don't know that I'm saying it's, it wouldn't be on mine, but. All right. It's a good f- argument. <laughs> the final category in this, boy, I, this really surprised me. I didn't realize there's a category of, Song credits. I saw that. Where in this particular movie, he was uh, a singer, and I'm I'm not sure what role, and also the lyricist that was in Gran Torino. Really? Yep. Huh. I didn't see Gran Torino on the song credit list. I think you made that. Singer and lyricist. Cool. Excellent. Excellent. Good lists. We give the nod to our guest on the list yeah, since, he cat- so. since he categorized. He categorized, them. yeah. <laughs> Put way more work into your top five than we have this whole time. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Rick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me, man. Good stuff. See you guys next time. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening. <laughs> See ya.